following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. I got a chance to uh, jump in this morning with where Pastor Tim has been taking you in the book of Genesis. So if you'd open up your Bible... We're going to jump right in on Genesis chapter 4. Um, if we were to have a soundtrack to this message, um, it would be Frank Sinatra's 1968 song. By the way, I was one year old in 1968, uh, which makes me feel old, but looking out, some of you are older, so I feel better. Um, 1968, he wrote a song called I Did It My Way. Anybody remember that? I'd sing it for you, but we'd all be really depressed. If I did that, uh, so maybe the girls can come out. You want to come up and sing? No. Okay. Uh, I did it my way, Frank Sinatra. This could be the soundtrack of our text today. We're going to be in Genesis 4. Here's just a, a couple of phrases from Sinatra's song. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. Some of you, you want to start crooning right now, don't you? You do. I, I feel it. Uh, my friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this. Can you sing it with me? I did it my way. That's it. See? If I, if I had a song, we'd, well, it almost would have been that bad. All right. Uh, so more than Sinatra's theme, um, that, that song, at least the title and the gist of what you just picked up from those few phrases... Uh, it's thematic of human nature, isn't it? We have six kids. Uh, my wife Amy is right here, and two of the kids you saw, uh, Caitlin's 18, going off to England to go to school in the fall. Autumn is 16. Caleb is 14. Ellie is 12. And then we have two little guys who everybody here thinks are Thai, but they're not. They're Korean. South Korean, uh, we get asked all the time, are they from the North? No, nothing comes out of North Korea. Uh, they're three in one. And I will tell you from being a parent that Sinatra's song is thematic to human nature. They would tell you, looking at me as a parent, that Sinatra's song is thematic in my life. I... Truth, okay? I'm a long way from home. This isn't going to get podcast, I'm pretty sure. But I, I, I'm, a selfish, I'm a selfish guy. I don't like anybody telling me what to do. I, my staff knows that that's true of me. I don't like anybody telling me what to do. In fact, I told them, when I'm gone for these 14 weeks, if you guys just hang on and you just try to survive until Nate comes home, you're going to have a miserable, lousy summer. But if you take the perspective, we're finally going to get to do what we think God has been calling us to do. But Nate keeps stopping us. You take that perspective and maybe, maybe, maybe God will do some new stuff here. And if good things happen when I get home, we'll, we'll sing your praises. If bad things happen, I'll come home and I'll say, I told you so. Sinatra's song, song is thematic of my life. I, I, that's just true of me. I, I want to do things my way. And, I, and apart from Jesus, I am a lousy excuse for a husband, father, and man. Genesis chapter 4. It's part of the preface to the Bible. Uh, do, you, do you read the preface when you read books? I've been reading books like crazy since I've been on break. Not anything good, really. Stuff that I've been throwing away after I read it, honestly. I didn't want to bring any books that I'd have to carry for these weeks in Thailand. So I'm reading stuff by DeMille, and I'm reading adventure stuff, and then I'm just tossing it. Fortunately, the missionaries whose home we're staying in have some good books, so I'm reading some good things too. But honestly, I, I usually skip the preface. And if I can't figure out the plot, I read the last two pages of the book. 
But the preface is important because it does give you some context. It sets up what you're about to see. It gives you the larger view. It explains what is to come. And Genesis, these first few chapters in particular, are the preface to all that follows in God's Word. So, a little bit of background, a little bit of review to where Pastor Tim has taken you. And since only about three of you have been here for the whole series, <laughs> if that many, um, you need to pay attention to this. All right, Genesis chapter 1 uh, gives us the origin of the world in which we live. Genesis 1, the origin of the world in which we live. In other words, life is not an accident. We went to Monkey World, or whatever it is, um, up in the hills. We didn't come from them. Okay? Genesis chapter 1 lays that down pretty clear. Genesis chapter 2 uh, tells us who we are and what sets humans apart from the rest of the universe. Genesis 3 tells us what went wrong and why we are so messed up. Why the world is not the way that we hope or not the way that we dream it should be. Why it is how it is. You've been around long enough. You have hopes and dreams of how things ought to be in your family, in your marriage, in your ministry, in your life. And it's just not that way often. Genesis 3 tells us a little bit. It's part of the preface. It sets the stage for all the rest of the scriptures, why things are the way that they are. It analyzes a little bit the roots of evil as well. Genesis chapter 4, where we're going to jump in today, gives us a picture. It's a snapshot of sin's fruit. It's a snapshot of what has happened since Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And it reveals to us that disobeying God has consequences. Disobeying God has consequences. We have a three-year-old named Isaiah. He looks a little bit... I'm Dutch. But everybody thinks, if I'm carrying him in the grocery store, everybody thinks that this little Korean is mine by blood. Dutch had East Indies holdings, and I guess somewhere I got a little Asian. Somewhere in our family tree. Uh, and uh, Isaiah is struggling right now with this whole concept that God reveals to us in Genesis chapter 4, that sin has consequences. I'll lay down for him, bro. You do not get another cheese cracker. It's going to spoil your dinner. And he'll just puzzle and look at me. And then he'll pause and say, Dad, you need to wait a minute. I say, why? That just doesn't make any sense, Dad. I should be able to have more crackers. And then, sure enough, if we leave the crackers within reach, he will take them. And so we're helping him to understand that sin has consequences, like a spanking or a timeout or a bellyache. Genesis 4, picture of sin's fruit. By the way, not all the consequences, according to Genesis 4 and our own lives, not all the consequences of sin are immediate. Many times it is our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren that reap what we sow. In fact, I, I want to keep coming back to this theme throughout the morning. Parents, what we do, what we allow in moderation, our children will tend to take to excess. You, you perhaps have heard that before. That's a theme I want to keep cycling back to as we look at Genesis 4. What parents allow in moderation, the kids tend to take to excess. Genesis 4. I want to try to do this with you in five acts. Okay, Genesis 4. First of all, we'll just read through it together. And I'm getting old, and because we're traveling, I've got this miniature invisible Bible. And so, I'm wearing my glasses. Genesis 4. Adam lay with his wife Eve. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said... <clears throat> With the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Sounds like a big baby. <laughs> Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain 
worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. And so Cain was angry and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face down? This sounds like the conversation I have almost every day. If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Hey, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he'll suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And so Cain went out from the Lord's presence, and he lived in the land of Nod, which means wandering, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife. She became pregnant, gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad. To Erad, the fa- and Erad was the father of Mahujael. Mahujael was the father of Methushel. And Methushel was the father of Lamech. I have the genealogy in chapter 5 next week, so I'll be working on the names all week. 19. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. I wonder if they got him confused. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada, Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. That's kind of a nice poem, huh? Adam lay with his wife, verse 25. And she gave birth to a son, named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son. He named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Acts chapter, or excuse me, Act 1 of Genesis chapter 4. Act 1, the first two verses. Okay, we'll just call it the lads. The lads. These are the boys that were born to Adam and Eve. Now, note, note that these boys were born not in Eden, but out of Eden. The lads were born in the same place that you and I live. Out of Eden. Out of the kind of presence, or being in the kind of presence of God that Adam and Eve originally were designed and created for. What parents allow in moderation, children tend to take to excess. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. All right. What was Eve's curse? Pain in childbirth. It sh- there is no one there except Adam. She's never had anybody explain to her what's about to happen. Nobody has said, okay, it's going to hurt. There's going to be these things called contractions. There's going to be this dilation. You're going to have to push. You're going to have to practice your breathing for nine months. Nobody explained that to her. She just had to do it. And Adam did what probably most guys in the room did. Gee, that looks like it hurts. My dad, I kid you not, I kid you not, my father was thrown out of my delivery room. Back in the day, 43 years ago, when I was being born, dads hardly ever got a dispensation to come into the delivery room. Somehow, 
He's a preacher. He talked his way in. He was gowned up, booted, capped, masked, until he said something abominably stupid. My mother is groaning. She is pushing. 36 hours. I, took, I, didn't, I didn't want to come out. 36 hours. And somewhere in the middle of all of that, my dad says, Come on, Charm. It can't hurt that bad. <laughs> really. I'm not making this up. He said that out loud. And the nurse said, Get the hell out. And so he was cast out of the delivery room, and I was born without a father's presence. And I've been a little messed up ever since. I, I, I'm not kidding. He, he was thrown out. Well, imagine, imagine Eve. Now, many of you have, have given birth. Eve had nobody to explain it to her, nobody except Adam there, and it hurt. That was part of the curse, at least as it applied to the female. With the help of the Lord, she said, yeah, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. What's amazing is verse 2. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. After having given birth once, she didn't beat Adam to death with a rock while he slept. She did it again. They had another child Names are significant. They're outside of Eden. They're no longer in paradise. Yet Eve has hope. She has hope. I don't think she completely understood what chapter 3, verse 16 was referring to in its prophetic sense that Messiah would come, that there would be a rescue operation, that the enemy of God would somehow be defeated. I, I don't think she completely understood. In fact, we didn't really understand until all of that was fulfilled in prophecy. But somehow, she had hope that something would change, that God would deliver, that God would, would rescue. And, and she has hope because you see it in her firstborn's name. Cain means gotten or acquired. It's as if she's saying, now I have the promise. Now God has stepped in. Now things are going to get better. The curse is with us. Childbirth hurt, but he's a child of promise. He becomes a farmer. Abel is born. Interesting name for Abel. It's as if Eve had set so much stock, so much store in, in Cain. He, he has gotten, he has acquired, he, he has something attached to promise to God's deliver. Abel's born, second born. She names him temporary. That's what his name means. Vapor. Mist. It reminds me of, of uh, what happens in families. Right, first baby is born, and right, don't you have albums? Don't you have computer files jammed full of your firstborn kid? And you want to show it to everybody, and nobody's really that interested. Your second kid is born, you take a lot of pictures, but not as many. Your third kid is born, you forget you have a camera, right? Because both hands are full. By the time the fourth child is born, Ellie, I'm sorry, we do have some pictures of you. Right? It, it, there's almost like this kind of a thing going on in, in the birth order of the first two kids. Vapor, temporary. And he becomes a shepherd. What the parents allow in moderation, children tend to take to excess. Act 1, the lads. Act 2, verses 3 through 7. Act 2, we could call worship and warning. Worship and warning. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. 
The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to him, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But you don't do what's right. But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Worship seems to be hardwired into who we are as human beings. The boys come to worship. I don't know why, other than the fact that it just seems that we have to find something in life to worship. Many of you work with all kinds of different cultures. Every culture finds something to worship. Sometimes we make those things to worship. We call them idols. Sometimes, well, we still call them idols. We, we worship things like greed or sex, money, power, people. It's hardwired into us to worship. The guys are driven to believe in something that is bigger than themselves. And so Cain and Abel, I'm sure following the example of their parents, Adam and Eve, they, they must come to worship. So they do. The ancients said it this way, our hearts are forever restless until they find rest in God. And, well, we know this is true, right? Worship is hollow without giving. Worship is hollow without sacrifice unless we bring ourselves. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about that. Worship is an offering. We almost forgot our offering this morning. I was very comfortable because we forgot our offering. We forget it all the time at our church. But, but worship is hollow. It's empty. It's meaningless unless we, we bring sacrifice. And so the, the boys do that. They bring a sacrifice. They each bring a gift. And right, you remember, Cain, he's a farmer, so he figures, I'll just bring some of my crops. Abel, he's a shepherd, he's a herdsman, he brings the fat portion, and listen to how specific the text is, the, the fat portion of the firstborn of some of his flock. And what happens? I spent a lot of my life just kind of thinking, this wasn't fair. Right? God gets ticked. He's mad at Cain. He's pleased with Abel. I spent a lot of my life reading that text and going, man, God was just cranky. God was just in a bad mood. Maybe he's still ticked at Eve and Adam. And so he takes it out on the boys. I mean, there's nothing in the text that says, here's how you're supposed to worship. Here's what you bring to worship. Here's the kind of sacrifice you, you worship with. What's the big deal? Why in the world does God react the way that he does? What we know later is that God expects blood sacrifice. God expects that sin be atoned for. God expects, in fact, he demands a sin offering. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 much, much later in the scriptures, says it this way. Hebrews 9, 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness from sin. You say, well, that's nice, but uh, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, they didn't have Hebrews, right? Somehow they knew. You say, how'd they know? I don't know. I don't know how they knew. But they knew. Because God holds them accountable to a knowledge that somehow they had to have. Some have suggested that it was in the stars. And that's the origin of astrology. Some have suggested that part of God's conversation with Adam and Eve and the, and the first two kids... Cain and Abel, that, that somehow God had communicated, this is how 
you deal with sin. This is how atonement must be done because sin has entered the world. Somehow they knew. God as well seems to judge harshly, terribly harshly, because of the attitude, the motivation that's behind the gift. So how do we know what their motivation was? Because of what happens when correction steps in. So we, we see really strongly the attitude behind it, behind the offering. Cain says, I'm going to do it my way. It's easier for me to just take some of the fruit of the ground. Abel says, I'm going to do it God's way. 1 John 3, verse 12, tells us that Cain is a picture of evil in his intent. Abel is a picture of righteousness. And the result is anger. The result is anger. What parents do in moderation, kids tend to take to excess. Excess. What have your kids learned about worship from you? What did you learn about worship from your parents? I've been thinking about that. What do my kids know of worship from watching my life? Not, not just when I'm on, when I'm teaching, or when I'm at my church and I know that everybody's looking at me. What do they know of worship from seeing me worship at home? from seeing me lead the family in worship. I remember very clearly the day that our oldest child said to me, Dad, do you ever read your Bible? I'm a professional holy person. I get paid to read my Bible. I get paid to be good. And my child at age four says, Dad, do you ever read your Bible? I realize she doesn't see me read my Bible. Why? Because I read it at the office. I read it in the room. I read it when she's in bed. It made me have to make some choices about not worshiping just when it's convenient to me or when I'm patterned to do it, but to worship as an example, to teach my kids. Both good and bad, what parents allow in moderation, kids tend to take to excess. Well, God has stepped in. The result is that Cain gets angry. Cain gets angry. I mean, when you read that, don't you get kind of irritated with him? He just, he just gets mad. God, God corrects him, and his first response is to go kick something. Again, my, my three-year-old, I'm, I'm glad that we adopted and we have a kind of a second set of kids because my sermon illustrations have been expanded for another 18 years. But our, our three-year-old... His response to correction almost universally is fury. He just gets mad. The screaming, I don't like. The sullen, quiet pouting, I don't mind. But he just gets angry almost every time that he's corrected. He's just mad and he'll throw something or hit something or knock something over or punch his baby brother. That's what Cain does. I mean, honestly, I, you just want to slap him a little bit. Especially if you're a parent. What parents do in moderation, kids tend to take to excess. What are your kids learning about anger as they watch your life? What do they learn about violence? What do they learn? Oh, well, what did you learn about anger from your parents? The only kind of counseling I do anymore in ministry is pre-marriage counseling. It's fun. It tends to be where I lead the most people to Christ. Uh, so I, I just love to do it. I love to be engaged in the hearts of people, especially because it's preemptive, right? Everybody's not fouled up yet. Okay, but most of the time when, when people come from marriage counseling, they just need a papal blessing. They're looking for, just tell me I'm right, he's an idiot. And I can say, the church is behind me as I leave this marriage. I love pre-marriage because it's kind of a blank slate. Although, we spend a lot of time in pre-marriage uh, talking about where they've come from, their family of origin. And one of the questions I ask is, what did you learn about anger? 
from your guardians, from your parents. Because we tend to repeat, without God's intervention, we tend to repeat what was modeled for us. So what did you learn about anger? Listen. It is never an excuse to say, I I was just mad. I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I did that. I I was just angry. You've got to kind of understand. You'll let that go. That is cheap, cop-out behavior. You and I can control our anger. We can control ourselves. We can. You know how we know that this is true? The stuff that you say behind closed doors, you would not say in the office or at the grocery store. We control our anger. We have the ability to control it. We do. We just choose not to sometimes, and then we try to blow off our behavior with, ah, I was was just mad. That's what Cain did. He got mad, and he stayed mad. And he premeditates murder. What do your kids learn about anger from you? What parents do in moderation, kids tend to take to excess. Verses 6 and 7, instructions for life with God. Central to the whole passage. Instructions for life with God. If you do what's right, you're accepted. If you don't, and and listen to the imagery here, sin is crouching. It's crouching. It's the word for an animal ready to pounce. We were talking yesterday about whether or not to go to Tiger Kingdom. But I understand that the tigers tend to pounce. We're not going. That's the imagery. Something that's ready to go. Sin is crouching and it desires to have you. And the word there is is a a word for slavery. It's master to control you, to overshadow you. It desires to have you, to make you its slaves, but you must master it. So Cain would say, "I, I just got mad. I couldn't help myself. You know, I I got tempted to do something wrong, and and so I just did it. You know, it's human weakness. God's instruction to him before he acts. He's, He's mad. He's simmering. And God's instruction is, listen, man, you need to do what's right. Because sin is crouching. It's ready to jump. It wants to control you. It wants to make you do It's bidding. But no, you can control it. It's Romans 6, in a nutshell. Cain came to worship to discharge a duty. He came to to worship to sing some songs, to make his offering, do his thing for Jesus, and then go back to doing it his own way. Abel has faith. Hebrews chapter 4 Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11 says it this way. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. Verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God appeals to Cain, and even God's appeal, Cain resists. God can't even talk him out of it. And so, Act 3. Act 3. Murder and mercy. Act 3. Murder and mercy. This spans down from verse 8 to verse 16. Verse 8. Premeditated murder. Listen to the the calculated way he does this. Uh, Cain said to his brother Abel, Hey, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. And then, well, we see when God catches him that he does exactly what mommy and daddy taught him to do. He said, well, he wasn't born yet. He heard the stories. He repeats the, um, I'm not really responsible. I don't, God, I don't know what you're talking about. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? They, they sinned, and immediately there was shame and embarrassment and guilt, and so they hide because now we know that we're naked. Now we know that there's something to be ashamed of. 
Cain does the same thing. He's killed his brother. His blood is crying out from the ground. And he says, I, I, I don't know where my brother is. I, am I my brother's keeper? That is a pushback immediately. God says, you're cursed. Verses 10 through 12, you're cursed. And here's the curse. You are driven from the ground. Wait, he made his living as a farmer. He, he knew crop rotation. He knew the seasons. He, he could watch the weather and know when to plant and when to harvest and when to fertilize. And God says, your curse, you have to leave the ground. To leave the ground. And the ground, when you do stop and plant, will no longer be fruitful. It will no longer yield to you. You're going to be a restless wanderer for the rest of your life. Now, that's the murder. Act 3, here's the mercy. This is God's incredible grace and kindness. Because this guy is not repentant. He's just sorry. There's not evidence here that he was really broken. He was just sad because he got caught and because the consequences were steep. And so, here's God's mercy. He relents a little bit. Verse 13 and 14. Cain appeals. He's afraid. No land. No presence of God. No relationship. He's being sent out from his family. No safety. He's afraid for his life. And God says in verse 15 and 16, let me give you some grace. I'm going to give you some mercy. I'm going to put a mark on you for your safety. What was it? I don't know. I'm kind of hoping when we get to heaven, we find out it was a huge birthmark on his face. Something like that. I don't know what it was. Somehow, there was a mark on him that distinguished him from anybody else. You say, how many other people were there, really? Right? Who was he afraid of? His brothers and sisters? Yeah, he was. He was afraid that they were going to take vengeance on him. Now, you're going to see in chapter 5, the genealogy, these dudes lived a long, long, long time. And they had a lot of babies. And we only hear about some of the babies. And we tend not to hear about the girl babies. But there were lots of children. And Cain's afraid that the rest of his family is going to be vigilante. They're going to come after him the same way that he went after Abel. God says, I'm going to put a mark on you, and I'm also going to just lay down this baseline penalty. Anybody hurts Cain, they're going to get seven times the vengeance. So, don't hurt Cain. It will not go well for you. What parents allow in moderation, kids tend to take to excess. From Adam to Cain, Adam passes on willfulness. I'm going to do it my way. Cain passes it on, and we'll see that in just a moment. In my community, a little town called Monroe, we're about 35 miles east of Seattle in Washington State. We're right at the foothills of the Cascade Mountains. And our, our town's claim to fame is we have the largest prison population of the whole state. It's, it's good, good stuff, really. Um, in fact, we hesitated to move there, but the housing was so cheap, we kind of had to. Um, it's lit up. The whole town is lit up. You, you can, as you're coming um, towards our town from neighboring communities, nine, ten miles away, you can see the horizon lit up from all the arc lights. It's like a stadium. There's five prisons. Five prisons. We have a full-time pastor that ministers up there. He's planted a bunch of churches. He does all kinds of great stuff. But, but one of the things that we have found to be true is this. There are no happy daddy stories in prison. There are no happy daddy stories. You know, I'd, I'd heard that on Mother's Day you can't provide a prison with another, enough Mother's Day cards. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter how many Mother's Day cards you bring in, they will be gobbled up and sent out. Because every prisoner, like every football player, wants to say, Hi, Mom. But on Father's Day, we have found this to be true. You cannot give away Father's Day cards. Nobody wants one. Nobody has a happy daddy story. And so what they learned from Dad... What dad learned from grandpa, what grandpa learned from great grandpa, the cycles of anger and violence, the cycles of deceit, the cycles of addiction, they're all repeated over and over again. We have 5,500 prisoners in our community who illustrate 
Genesis chapter 4. What parents allow in moderation, kids tend to take to excess. Act, act 4. Act 4. Consequences. Verse 17 through 24. Cain lay with his wife. This is, uh, this is Cain's story now. Consequences. Cain, he's east of Eden. He's left the building. He's out. He's a wanderer now. He's in the land of Nod, which means wandering. And here's his story. Cain lay with his wife. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. Isn't that interesting? Anybody find the disconnect there? He's in the land of Nod, which means wandering. He's supposed to be, right, his curse, a restless wanderer. And what's one of the first things that he does? Builds a city. Yeah, the first thing that should have caused you to ask the question is, where do you get a wife? Right? You got a wife. So this is a little bit of Alabama in Genesis chapter 4. <laughs> Sorry, you guys, anybody from Alabama, I apologize. Uh, just read Louisiana if you don't like Alabama. Okay? Uh, you say, well, how come they didn't have kids with three eyes and 11 fingers? My theory, genetic strain was really, really good back then. And we have been devolving ever since. So he has a wife, and the first thing he does, he's supposed to be wandering. He builds a city for his kids. He doesn't have any kids. He's going to build a city that has a kid, names it after his kid. He disobeys. He settles down. What he's teaching his son, even in the name of the city, is you don't have to do everything that God says. It's okay to kind of decide for yourself what you're going to do and not do. I learned that from my dad. You learned that from your parents. I'm teaching my kids. There are some things that you do because God says and other things that you say, ah, probably all right. And parents, what we do in moderation, our kids tend to take to excess. Even though he settles down, he's not the happy wanderer in the land of wandering, the land of Nod. Here's what happens. He prospers. You say, well, how come the wicked prosper? I don't know. You join Solomon in crying out, why does that happen, God? All of Ecclesiastes, it seems like most of the Proverbs. Why do the wicked prosper? I don't know. You say, well, how, how do you know they prospered? Well, you know something about cultures, right? Part of his line, his grandkids, his great-grandkids, they are into leisure, which means they had time for leisure, which means they weren't just agrarian making it from one harvest to the next. One whole line of the family were musicians. You don't have musicians in a culture that's just trying to get by. They had time for leisure. They were prosperous. They, they'd learned how to work metal, how to smelt, because one whole line of the family were metal workers. They were doing well. They were prospering, materially successful, spiritually crippled. And you say, how do you know that? Because here, five, six generations down the road, we come to Lamech. Lamech. And what he's learned, right, from... Great, 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 grandma and grandpa, Adam and Eve, and from great, great, grandpa, Cain. You can do some of what God says, but you don't necessarily have to take all of it that seriously. And so he decides, right, that even though God said it's not good for a man to be alone, the two become one flesh, right? He decides, I need two women, because I'm a whole lot of man. First polygamy, Islamic. And he illustrates a sexual greed. A sexual greed. That his children and his children's children will look at his example and say, well, that was okay there. And they'll take to even further excess. Parents, what you and I allow in moderation, sexually, regarding lust, pornography, our kids will tend to take to excess. You say, well, my kids don't even know. Yes, they do. 
I don't know what it is here. The average age in the United States when a kid sees online pornography is now between 10 and 11 years old. 10 and 11. It's probably not any different here because I'm pretty sure the Internet works here. In fact, I know it does. I've been blogging. Which means the stuff, the stuff that when I was a kid and you were a kid, you had to go to the deepest, darkest places in the inner city and ask the guy behind the counter to give you what's under the counter so you could sneak it home. That stuff, in about three clicks, is available to a 10-year-old. And we're fueling it. This generation is fueling it. And the next generation is reaping the consequences. But we allow in moderation. Our kids will tend to take to excess. Lamech, well, we, we see him carrying on Cain's legacy. Remember, he, he writes the poem, uh, how he, honey, honey, two honeys, honeys, let me sing you a song. And he sings about his murder, how a young warrior had come at him and struck him, and so he killed him. And, and then he's presumptuous, and he's prideful. He says, remember how great-great-great-grandpa Cain, remember God said, if, if he killed, if anybody hurt him, right, because of his murder, it's seven times the vengeance that God's going to reap. Well, I get 77 times. I'm just that kind of guy. What parents allow in moderation, kids tend to take to excess. What are you passing on? What are you passing on? What do you want to pass on to your kids? What would you rather not have them pick up? I'm pretty sure that someday my kids are going to be talking to somebody, a therapist, a friend, their spouse, about what I did to screw them up. Okay, here's my goal. I want to mitigate that as much as possible. And I want to not pass on the same stuff that I got. I'd like to, I'd like to do new stuff. I don't want to pass on the same sins and the same weaknesses and the same, same garbage that I've inherited that I saw in my parents in moderation that I took to excess or, or even just continued or justified in my life. What do you want to pass on? What do you not want to pass on? Here's Act 5. Act 5. Okay, we're going to close it right here. Go to communion. Act 5 is hope. Act 5, hope. Adam lay with his wife. Now we're back to Adam. Away from Cain's family east of Eden. We're back to Adam. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, and she named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. We could call this, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Adam and Eve, Seth, the next son. Seth's name literally means granted. Granted. God's promise. Seth also had a son. He named him Enosh. And here's the curious way that this chapter ends. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. God has intervened. Another son has been given. Seth. God has granted something new. He's restored what was lost to murder and to anger and to sin. He's placed his mercy and his grace on Adam's family. What parents allow in moderation, kids tend to take to excess. All right, I've said that enough times. If that is true, if that is true, then we are really, really in trouble. But you and I are not simply the conglomeration of everybody else before us foul-ups. We are not the sum total of our parents' and our grandparents' sin and poor choices because the grace of God exists. We see that in this little snippet that takes us back from Cain's family and gives us a little glimpse of what God is still doing with Adam and Eve. 
He's provided another sign, another sign, another child of promise. And this child, Seth, his child, Enosh, he is the line to Messiah. The child who was killed is replaced in God's mercy, kindness, and grace with a child who will one day lead to Jesus. There is hope. You and I are not destined to repeat the mistakes of our past or our parents or our grandparents. We can be different. Our kids can be different. Our grandkids can be different. But only through Jesus Christ. Only by calling on His name. So let's do that now. Would you pray with me? We're going to talk to Jesus, and then we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done through worship, singing, and communion. But right now, just between you and Jesus, just between you and Jesus, what was passed on to you that you wish you hadn't caught? What are you passing on to your children? Or what have you passed on that you wish you could take back? This is the time to ask for God's grace, His mercy, His forgiveness if necessary. This is the moment to make fresh commitments, to make adjustments that say, God, I, I want to be different. I want to... I want my kids to be free of what binds me. This is the time to call on God's grace, on His mercy, and on His promise. This is the time to make decisions about how to pass on worship and obedience and consistency and repentance. Jesus, we love You. We're so deeply grateful for all that you've done for us. Thank you that there is hope, that though we read these dark moments in our history, we see the pattern of sin as it flows downhill and downstream, and we just say, ah, yuck. And we see it flowing all the way through our grandparents, our parents, and into our own lives, and down to our kids. Oh, Jesus, would you set us free by your blood, through your mercy and your grace. We want to follow your leadership, not our own. We don't want to do it our way. We want to do it yours. And we celebrate now your goodness to us. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.